Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Joanne Smith-Farrell. Joanne is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based B-Biopharma. Many listeners of this show are familiar with the explosion of activity in cell therapy. Engineered T-cell therapies have delivered extraordinary results for people with certain types of cancer. The success with these personalized T-cell therapies, which get genetically modified outside the body and then reinfused to attack the cancer cells, has inspired all kinds of other academic and industrial work. Many people are working on natural killer, or NK cells. Others are seeking ways to make off-the-shelf or so-called allogeneic T-cell therapies that can be administered to patients much more cheaply and easily in many more clinics around the world. What you don't hear as much about is engineered B-cell therapies. This other cell type of the adaptive immune system has been challenging for scientists to work with. This is the work B-Biopharma is taking on. It aspires to create engineered B-cell therapies for cancer and rare diseases. It wants to make them so they can be given off the shelf to any patient and be given via repeat doses without the need for toxic preconditioning regimens that are required by today's cell therapies. That's the goal. Joanne came to lead this startup in 2021 from Bluebird Bio, where she was the chief operating officer and head of the company's oncology business unit. I should add that I've personally gotten to know Joanne a bit over the past few months. She accepted my challenge to join the Kilimanjaro Kleinified Cancer Campaign to raise $1 million for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. She trained for months in preparation to climb Africa's highest peak, committing herself to a team of biotech professionals who committed to raise $50,000 each for cancer research. This team successfully raised $1 million over the past six months, and Joanne did her part. Then, to everyone's disappointment in the final weeks, she came down with an injury. She was not able to join us on the mountain. Joanne and I recorded this conversation back on January 10th at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. This was before her injury. We were both eager with anticipation of the climb. I thought about editing out the Kilimanjaro references in this episode because they wouldn't be relevant anymore. But when I listen again to what she said and what the mountain means to her, I decided to leave it in for all of you to hear. Joanne's passion for biopharmaceutical R&D and for patients shines through. She has a story here that she shares quite frankly. To no one's surprise, she is bouncing back from this disappointment and already talking to me and others about getting ready for the next mountain in 2024. I think you're gonna enjoy this episode quite a bit. Now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, scientist.com. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research projects and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. 
Now, if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column, and insightful viewpoints from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Now, please join me and Joanne Smith-Farrell on the Long Run. Joanne Smith-Farrell, welcome to the Long Run. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Joanne, I want to start by uh, drawing on something I saw you wrote in your professional bio on your company webpage. It says you're a mission-driven executive. What does that mean to you, and why do you say that? That has meant different things to me over the course of my career. Right now, if you were to walk into B-Bio, the first thing you would see is a picture of a patient and a, a a sentence on the wall that says, eyes locked on the patient, every decision, always. And to me, a mission-driven executive, a mission-driven person is somebody who believes so strongly in something, even if it's hard, even if it's ambitious, that they're going to do what it takes to actually make it come about. And for us, and for me in particular, um, that is, there is a whole world of patients out there who need options that they don't currently have. And there's an urgency and an intensity that that brings to our work as we move through that mission. And there's a commitment to getting there. You know, I asked this partly because um, I know something about your drive around the mission through your participation in the Kilimanjaro Climb to Fight Cancer yes. uh, campaign that, that, uh, that I'm putting together. And by the time people hear this, hopefully you will have already <laughs> summoned the mountain exactly. and and, uh, and smiled on the summit. Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> but this is uh, this is a real challenge, a test that that uh, you'll push yourself to raise money for charity. You'll push yourself physically to uh, to uh, to do something for ultimately for patients. Yes, indeed. You know, I the the Kilimanjaro trip. Uh, I, each of us has our story as we approach it. And it's been amazing to hear the stories of the people in the group who are gonna be climbing this year. And my own story is really rooted. There's a, there were, there's a bit of a poetry to the mountain as a metaphor, um, as I accept this commitment. And so in my own journey, as in so many people's, cancer has been a part of it. We lost my husband to cancer about seven years ago. And, you know, I, before that, I would have described myself as a mission-driven executive, and I, I would have been accurate in that description. The experience of moving through his illness, moving through his loss, and then moving back out into becoming part of the industry mission that we all share um, has changed for me what that means. And this mountain, right, it is a metaphor. I mean, all of us in this industry take on things that are almost impossible but not quite, <laughs> right? And in doing that, you know, as, as, we, as we all approach this mountain, we see this 19,341 foot 
endeavor that we've taken on. And while none of us know what that's going to look for us as we look like for us as we move up that mountain, we know it's not going to be linear. We know there's going to be a set of things that we can't anticipate, but we train for anyway. And we know that what's mostly going to get us up there is just a commitment to making sure that it happens and to pulling each other through, right, as we encounter those things. And I feel like in this industry, we do that every day. Uh, and you look at the results. I mean, we're trying to understand the most complex system that has ever existed anywhere, which is which is biology, right? And the way in which biology translates into human disease and cures or treatments for it. And somehow we as an industry push through that because we believe so strongly in the endpoint. And so there are, there are many, many metaphors uh, with that mountain. For me personally, there's a poetry in raising money. And this is a lot of money that we're raising, right? To be part of a group that's raising more than a million dollars um, and to make a commitment to raise at least 50,000, that's a lot of money to crush cancer, at least help the Hutch crush cancer. And for me, it also is a set of things that are hard for me to do. After Matthew died, I actually stopped doing a lot of the things we used to do together, and that included intense fitness. And so when I called you in July and said, I think I might do this, I'm going to hire a trainer, that was a re-engagement of a part of myself that used to be important, is important again. And to do it in this context, there's something full circle uh, that's just very satisfying to me. Well, it's very satisfying for me as the coach of this team to see you embrace that challenge and come along uh, a long way in these past few months. Um, and then uh, there will be uh, teamwork and leadership on that mountain to help everyone get through. Um, okay, <clears throat> so this is a, a really good description, I think, of the mountain as a metaphor, uh, I, which, of course, I believe in. But um I want to talk about your current company, VBio, what you're going to do, what you're attempting to do for yeah. cancer. But let's start way back when. Rewind to uh, young Joanne. Where, where were you born and raised and how did you yes. uh, get, get started on this journey? So I was born and raised in Howard County, Maryland. Um, my dad was a physicist. My mom was a homemaker. Um, and, you know, I had the, the privileges that any middle class kid in America would have, which are substantial, particularly with respect to education. Um, I always find it interesting, though, for, for those of us whose story starts out that way, you really only have to peel back one generation often to find a very different story. And that's that's true of me as well. So my grandmother on my mother's side uh, came from Ireland at 17 years old, had almost no education, grew up in a one-room house with 10 brothers and sisters, um, and just took that courageous step of getting on a boat and coming into a place that was really quite inconceivable to her, um, and then working for three years for a family she didn't know um, as a housekeeper to earn money and both pay for her passage and pay for the passage of, of her next um, brother. And, you know, when you when you look at the consequences of that decision, just in terms of what I'm able to access, you know, what my parents were able to access first, what I'm able to access, what my brother's able to access, you know, there's a, I, I think there's a, I don't know, I'll for, I'm forever grateful for the courage that it would take. Well, that's a classic immigrant story. It is. And it's 
stamped into the DNA of sure a is. lot of people, yes. uh, whether we fully identify with it or not. Indeed, I agree. <laughs> it absolutely is. Um, but okay, so clearly there's that multi generational awareness in, in your yes. mind. Um, you said your dad was a physicist. Correct. What uh, What did he work on? So my dad worked, he was a primarily theoretical physicist. He worked on understanding why the cornea is transparent, uh, which is a, it's a non-trivial problem. The cornea is actually a pretty complex structure. And the, um, the, the mathematics as well as the experimentation you need to do behind that are, are complicated, not obvious. And by understanding them, you can get to things like how would you do laser surgery? Right. How do you do that in a way that preserves the, the transparency of the cornea? Huh. Now, where did he do this kind of theoretical work? Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. So my dad, in contrast to, to most folks, in, in uh, at least most of the folks I know uh, in their careers now, certainly in contrast to me, my dad spent his entire career at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and, and worked on a number of things. But that was the one that he primarily unraveled. Okay. Okay. Now, do you have any brothers or sisters? I do. I have a brother. Um, Rick is a business owner. Uh, Rick owns a business, which is, it's a heavy maintenance business. Um, they have a whole set of services. They work incredibly hard and he's, he's grown that business um, to a pretty substantial one. It's fun to talk to him about the economic models in what he does versus what we do. Uh-huh. You know, as, as I described to him what it is to raise money and spend money and then raise more money and spend more money and what the horizons are for any of us in terms of when we turn profitable. Uh, and then we contrast that to his business where, you know, obviously the, the bottom line is something that he manages carefully every day. It's, it's kind of fun um, to see the differences. It's a very different kind of business. It really is. <laughs> yes, it is. And so, okay, so is he older or younger than you? He's younger. He's two years younger than me. Okay, so it was the two of you. Correct. Now, okay, so you're the oldest. And um, are you, uh, what, what kind of student were you growing up? I was a good student growing up. So, you know, I, I think... My, my brother was the one who shined in athletics. He was, he still is just socially one of these people that everybody gravitates to. Um, he was not committed to academics back then. It's been interesting to see as he's grown his business, just how he's actually quite good at learning. Um, back then he had other priorities. I was the one who always, I just enjoyed learning. Um, I also had the advantage that my dad understood my brain. And so, you know, when I when I look at just my early academic journey, the amount of time that my dad spent with me, just for example, in mathematics, I mean, my, my degree is in physics as well. And, you know, that that time that we spent on mathematics, on physics, on just how does science work um, is something that I would primarily attribute to my dad and, and the, the amount of time that he spent with me. So I was, I was a decent student. And what kind of schools did you attend? Yeah, so I went to public school up through eighth grade um, in Howard County. They were good schools, um, and I learned a lot. And you know, the 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 great thing about public school, uh, I think now as as well as then, is that you just have this diversity of you know both background, but also learning style, et cetera. Um, I then went to a private all girls school uh, called Notre Dame Prep for high school. 
Um, and you know, that was, that was more oriented to somebody who had the, the kind of academic interests that I did. Mm-hmm. And what was that math and science in those? It was a little bit of both. So, you know, I think if you had asked me back then, I would have told you and accurately so that I thought I was destined to be in sciences and in the medical field. Um, that being said, back then I did a lot of writing. Um, I played guitar, I wrote music, right? And so there was there was another side to me that was better developed back then, frankly, than it is now. Um, and, you know, like when I was younger, if you'd said, well, what kind of science? What I would have told you um, is I, I wanted to be an oceanographer. I was actually incorrect in that. What I really probably wanted to be was a marine biologist because I love seals. I had this whole scheme when I was young about how I was going to convert my grandmother's basement into something that was cold enough for seals to live in. That's a different story for a different time. Um, but over time, you know, I loved asking why. And I loved understanding how does the world fit together? And you know, what I didn't discover until later in my career is while I'm not bad at having the answers to questions, where I'm probably best is in asking the right questions. Um, and then now at this stage in my career, getting a team put together that within the right frameworks, asking the right questions can then drive the answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you go to this good school, it's college bound, college prep kind of right. place. Yeah. Um, and uh, where did you go to uh, college? I went to Vanderbilt undergraduate. And oh. there I intended to be pre-med, um, but I took an introductory physics course. The one thing I knew I didn't want to be was a physicist because we had one of those in the family. So had no intention whatsoever um, to go into physics. But the professor was able to introduce the subject in a way that I mean, it was really beautiful. Physics is really beautiful. And, you know, the idea that you could study and understand a few laws and then use the language of mathematics to be able to describe whole new parts of our reality of the universe, of the way things tie together was just, you know, I found that almost magical. Um, and so I found myself drifting into taking more and more physics courses. I still remember calling my parents and telling my dad, dad, I think I'm, I think I'm going to be a physics major. And, you know, at the time he was like, that's great. You know, I now know in retrospect that apparently he went out and told everybody that it was like one of the happiest days of his say, life. Yeah. He must have been pretty happy. He really was happy with that. <laughs> um, but he never wanted to sort of try to encourage me down a path that I didn't that I didn't fully own for myself. Oh, wow. OK, so you decide physics uh, is going to be your major. And what, what did you think you were going to do? Or, or with that? So that's a great question. I don't know that I actually thought that deeply about it. One of the things I admire about, um, you know, the 20-something generation now is their intentionality with respect to what am I going to do with what I'm learning. I think at the time, I just really enjoyed learning it. Um, and so, you know, I made the decision after getting my, it was a degree in physics and in mathematics, um, to go to graduate school. Um, and I think that's where I really first started thinking about what might I do with this? Um, and then graduate school, you know, I had, I went to, um, Catholic university and at, at the university, I went there specifically to work with a professor named Ted Litovitz. 
and you know, Catholic, it's a, it's a small school. It's not particularly well-known in physics, but it was well-known for the part of physics that, that he worked on. And that's what I wanted to work on. And I learned a ton there. The thing about Catholic University, the thing about Ted Litovitz in particular, uh, that was so special was one day he comes into the lab. We'd probably work together for a few months at that point. And he says, Joanne, I turned 70 a few weeks ago. I said, I know, Ted. He said, that makes me really old. And I was a bit of a smart aleck. And so I said, I know it does, Ted. <laughs> and he said, I was driving in today. And he said, I've been depressed about it. But I decided what that means. Because I don't have to do anything. I don't want to anymore. So he said, today I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unhook from five things that I work on. He said, I'm going to use a portion of that time to teach somebody um, the this, this 70 years worth of experience that I've had on this earth. And he said, I've decided that's going to be you. And he said, so every day between now and when you graduate, we're going to have a conversation. And he made good on that. And so literally every day until I got my doctorate, we went out to either lunch or coffee. His wife started making lunch for the both of us because I kept eating his lunch. <laughs> and so, so we went out to lunch and he would, a lot of times it was about physics, right? A lot of times it wasn't. Right? A lot of times it was about life or relationship or business. He was a successful entrepreneur or um, he was Jewish. And so his, you know, his whole experience of what it was to be Jewish in a non-Jewish neighborhood, um, racial justice was something that he was very involved in. Uh, money. He had a very, very definitive philosophy with respect to money, leadership, right? And, you know, what a privilege that was. This was daily for how many years? Daily for, at that point, it took me four years. And so that was probably about a, a little over three years. Wow. Yes. It was profound. And even at the time I knew that, but it's really in retrospect, I look at that and and what a gift. Because Ted, Ted was somebody who held the bar super high. Right. So Ted always expected certain things of me and he always held the bar high. And it was really that deep humanity, right, that supported all of that. It was the combination of those two things that just set a foundation that I'll be forever grateful for. Were there other graduate students in the lab? There were. <laughs> I don't know. I, if your question is why why me, I honestly don't know. Huh. Huh. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's very fortunate that you, most graduate students don't get that much attention from the uh, the PI. That's right. That's right. No, it was it was amazing. Um, okay, so you come to the end, you get your PhD, yes. and then it's time to decide what you're going to do? Yes. And what were you thinking that would be? So initially, I started out just running some labs in the same place as I'd done my doctorate. Um, and, you know, just doing some projects that we'd already worked on, we had put in for some grants, we'd gotten the grants, I had a few folks on my team. Um, and, and that was interesting, right? I like doing science, I like doing bench science. Um, I always enjoyed a team and how, how you put some, you know, people together to to, to work on important problems. Over time, though, I decided I really wanted to bring that more into the biological sciences. Uh, and I happened, I was taking a, this is going to sound silly, but I was, I was taking a biochemistry class for fun. Um, and in that class, uh, I, the professor said something about this guy I'd never heard of, Bob Langer, right? So I'm a physicist. I don't know Bob. Um, and I found his 
work to just be fascinating. So I dashed off a little letter to him and I said, I don't know if you take postdocs, but if you do, I'd love to come and work in your lab. And um, heard back from Bob. He said, hey, you know, I'll be in your area. Why don't we get together? It was great. Right. And this was really before you could do deep research on people before like you met them. And so I met him and it was an awesome conversation. I ended up driving him back to the airport. And on the on the way back, he said, you know, I think you'd be a good fit to the lab. Why don't you why don't you come up? And I said, Yeah, I'll give it some thought. And and again, I I mean I at that point needed to then do my diligence. And the more I found out about him and the lab that he put together, I, I mean, what a privilege to go and work in that kind of an environment. So I moved up to Cambridge. Now, why do you think you were a good fit? Was it the grounding in the physics and the math, which not everybody in biology has? I think so. I think when I think about Bob, right, I think part of it is the way that Bob builds teams is so instructive. So he's looking He's looking for people who are, you know, obviously have the right um, educational background to be able to contribute, who have a good work ethic, but he's also looking for diversity, right? He's looking for diversity of perspective. And at the time I went up, I was the only physicist in the lab. And so I think as he thought about his ecosystem, and you've seen him do this through his whole career, right? The way that he constructs his networks and his teams is I don't know if it's intuitive or, or you know, or deliberately intentional, but there's a diversity of perspective there. And so, for example, when I did get to the lab, I still remember um, uh, one of the, uh, let's call her a postdoc. I think she was a visiting professor, but somebody came up to me and said, you know, I've been working on this problem for a while. Bob says you have a background in physics. Maybe you can help me. So she starts describing it. And it was in fluid dynamics. Now, fluid dynamics is what convinced me that there are things in this universe that no matter how hard I try, I will never understand, right? It is not linear. It is hard. It, and so it was in fluid dynamics. And I thought, oh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to help here. But I tried to understand what it was that she was working on. And so I asked questions. So let me understand. So here's the situation and then question, right? Okay. All right. So what I'm hearing is here's a situation and then question. I still don't understand this. After about six of those, she goes, you are so right. And she goes away. And then Bob sees me later and says, thank you so much for helping her with that problem. She's been working on it for a while. Luke, to this day, I can't tell you what the problem was. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, though, I approached even framing it in a different way. Right. Um, and and I, and I think I think, you know, again, Bob and others, they have an intuition as to how do you put people together so that you can really get the best out, out of all of them. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what was the main thing that you worked on in the Langer lab? So I worked on transdermal drug delivery there. We were at the time we were trying to um, deliver you know, both small and large molecules through the skin, which is which is very challenging because the skin is obviously a, a pretty variable entity on different people. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. So uh, Bob obviously had lots of projects going simultaneously, big lab, and all kinds of connections to the business community. Yes. Is this how you got thinking about maybe going to work in industry, or were you thinking maybe you'd still stay around in academia? Initially, I thought I would stay in academia, actually. You know, I, I loved the lab. I loved understanding things. In Bob's lab, it's it's always practical applications of breakthrough science. You know, when when you 
I imagine he still does this. When you arrive at Bob's lab, um, you know, your first meeting, you generally hear, or at least I heard two things and, and speaking to colleagues, they heard the same two things. Um, one is take your time and find a problem that you want to work on that's going to make a difference. And then two is he has three basic principles, right? One is work on something breakthrough, right? Nothing incremental. Two is work on something that's going to make a difference to people, right? And, and it's going to change the, you know, in a practical way, the way people work. The third, which sounds like it doesn't belong to the other two, um, but actually has been maybe at least as important, if not more than the other two, is people do their best work when they feel good about themselves. And, and that's true, right? And so, it, and you can feel it when you go into, into Langer Labs. Um, and you can feel it when, you know, a lot of times when, you're, when you look at a team that was put together by somebody who was trained in that environment, there's often a feel to that, to that team. That sounds like what your advisor back at uh, in graduate school did. I mean, There's he's demanding. He, he expects Very excellence. demanding. That's exactly right. But he's also making you feel important yeah. by spending a lot of time with you. Yes. And he's also communicating the fact that that intensity, right, which, you know, if you were to walk into B-Bio and ask anybody about our culture, hopefully what you would hear, and I think what you would hear is it's a very intense culture and that is matched by a very human culture. Right. And it's that combination. It's it's the intensity of knowing you have a mission that is so important that you're willing to do what it takes to to achieve it. And that means moving out of your comfort zone oftentimes. Right. But you've also developed relationships and a culture of humanity that gives the counter pressure to where that intensity can go if you don't have the humanity matched with it. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash longrun. Okay, so how did you end up actually going to work in industry? I think this was, was it Pfizer? So, it, no. So at that time, BC, it was, it was actually McKinsey came recruiting. And so McKinsey comes recruiting to MIT. I've never heard of them. No idea who they are. Um, it, but, you know, people, what people told me, and, you know, this is, this is the truth. The receptions are awesome and they feed you really well. And, and as a postdoc, of course, like if they feed you well, of course I'm going to go. So I went and um, ate well. I mean, the shrimp were like three inches long. I still remember it. <laughs> and they, um, they spoke about just consulting, business consulting. What do, what do you do in management consulting? And they played out a few case interviews because, as, as you probably know, the, the interview is case-based. So they give you a business problem and you're supposed to spend an hour um, solving. And I was like, seems silly. I mean, you don't know anything. So how could you possibly do that? So of course I signed up because I thought it was interesting and I thought I, I want to see. And McKinsey dinged me and because I had no idea what I was doing. And so I didn't get the offer from McKinsey. And then I was like, well, I don't love that. Right. So is there somebody else who's like McKinsey who could sign up and do this again? And um, 
submitted my resume to BCG, got the uh, got the interview, and uh, actually paid the head of the Entrepreneur, Entrepreneurs Club at MIT two pizzas to spend two hours with me to just even understand what is a case interview, um, and went through it with really very little intention of considering the job seriously. But in doing it, what became very apparent to me is that your ability to make an impact and a broad impact is very different in the business and a business world and an industry than it is in academia. Not better, but different. And there was something about the kind of impact and the timescale of the impact that I could make in the business world that was really appealing. And so I had a conversation with Bob and he said, look, he said, if, if you've if you've kind of caught that itch, you know, BCG is a great place to go and try to develop it. And he said, you know, you've got a good enough scientific training. If it turns out not to be the right thing. You haven't closed off any options. So I went to BCG uh, to learn business. Didn't know what the L was in P&L. <laughs> and, you know, um, it's a great training ground. And so I spent a few years there. And that really was my entree into the business world and into the world of biotech. So I went from there to GeneLogic, um, which was a biotech company where I had this kind of hybrid role. Um, and it was mostly as the, um, initially it was as the right-hand person to the head of the big business unit there, eventually became um, head of corporate development strategy. Uh, and then IR and PR and comms and marketing and a bunch of stuff started started coming under, under my remit. So if it started in business development, what uh, what did you like about business development? You know what I loved about business development? It was the solution. It was first trying to figure out what is this business you're trying to build, right? So, you know, having been so many, I, I mean, I spent a good deal of my career in BD and I love the kind of business development where the business you're trying to build is what you obsess on first, right? And then the deal follows. And I think the deal is a lot of fun. So, so I like the deal, but that's not actually what gets me out of bed from a BD perspective. It's really imagining what am I trying to create? How do I actually bring together these two entities in a way that's going to create something that can't actually happen without them both operating at their best? And then how do I wrap a relationship around that that's going to encourage that to happen? So at a small biotech company, Gene Logic, yes, you're out talking to the big companies who, who are you know looking to fill up their pipelines with innovative new things. Correct. Yes. So you get to know some of these people, and yes. uh, and and so how did you end up going over to Big Pharma? Yeah. So you know, I actually it was because of one of the negotiations we had done, um, and uh, my counterpart at one point called me up and said, "Hey, uh, I was at Pfizer." We're putting together this transactions group. Um, it was at a time when we anticipated a lot of transactions. Um, and he said, you know, what I, I think you'd be a good fit. Is this of interest? And, you know, and at the time, Gene Logic was actually going through a lot of changes, had just gotten a new CEO. Um, and, you know, I think it's always good to pause in those transitions and, and ask the question. So I went up, I talked to Pfizer um, and I was just really intrigued by the breadth of what the transactions group was going to do. And also, you know, when at least my experience in biotech was I always wondered, like within big pharma, how does all of this knit together? Right. We've got a piece of it. They're integrating all of it. How does that fit together? Um, so I made the decision to go over, over to Pfizer 
in part because of business development and the ability to, to deepen my skills there, but in large part also just to see drug development from end to end and to be involved in supporting, you know, through the BD art that, that I could contribute, you know, supporting that end to end getting a drug actually out there. Mm-hmm. That's like the scientific curiosity. There's there's That's just right. more things here that yes. I need to learn. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that drew you in. It did. That's right. Uh, now, did you stay in the Cambridge, Boston, Cambridge area, or did you move somewhere? No, at that point, so up through Gene Logic, I was mostly in the Maryland area, and then I moved to New York for Pfizer. So, so we moved to New York. Um, uh, we had, I think, a one-year-old at the time, and uh, and that's how I moved out of Maryland. Okay, so you're in New York, Pfizer headquarters. Um, for, for how long? Seven years. Okay. Yes. Okay. Now, then you're going to make this transition. Let's skip a little bit forward to Bluebird. Yes. Uh, what year was that that you went to over there? Yeah, so Bluebird is 2017. Oh, okay. So yes. Bluebird was well-established by this point. Yes. Um, Correct. What, what attracted you to come work there? Well, so in between the Pfizer and the Bluebird times, a very important pivot happened in my personal life. And that's very connected to why I went to Bluebird. So when I was at Pfizer, my husband was diagnosed with a glioblastoma. And, you know, Pfizer was amazing in terms of how it responded to that. And I was able to continue to develop as a professional, which I have to say was a huge relief, right? When when you're dealing, at least when I was dealing with that in my personal life, to be able to go into work in a place that was doing everything it could to change the stories of families like mine and change the stories of patients like my husband's, just an incredible relief. And so during that period of time, and then after I went to Merck, which was, which was what followed Pfizer, you know, I had a lot of just very up close and personal encounters with what is it that we're trying to combat? And what does it mean when we have the drug available or when we don't have the drug available? Now, you and your husband were how old when this happened? I was 42 and he was 49 when when he was diagnosed. We had one-year-old twins um, and we had our oldest had just gotten out of kindergarten. Um, so it was, you know, there's no story like that that happens at a good time in your life, um, but it was definitely a very formative time for our family and would have been independent of the health journey. And glioblastoma, when he got the diagnosis, yes. what was the prognosis for patients? A yeah. year? It was a year, right? And he had unfavorable genetics in, in the tumor, and so it was a year. And, you know, I, it was... As you can imagine, incredibly disorienting initially. And my response to it um, was first to go to clinicaltrials.gov. So while he was recovering from brain surgery, I'm reading these trials and I'm realizing there's just not much, right? And there really isn't. So so GBM, there there just is not um, a good approach. And so what I found myself doing is literally mapping every trial in clinicaltrials.gov and then grouping them um, by mechanism. And we have just this incredible privilege in our industry to have access to people who want to help. And so from there, did a bunch of phone calls with folks within the industry, with docs, with KOLs, uh, and started to understand that this was a journey we were really going to have to 
um, take on ourselves to to navigate through in our own way. And we did. And so he lived for four years. Um, and those were four amazing years, right? And I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. They were tough years in many ways. They were also the best years our family ever had in other ways. Just the gratitude that we felt on a day-to-day basis palpably, right? And the joy that we felt at being together, you know, palpably, right? Not It wasn't beneath the surface. It was very, very explicit. Uh, make those years things that I look back on, not as years of hell, right? I mean, they were really important, profound, and in many ways, joyful years for our family. Did he get enrolled in a clinical trial? So he didn't. Um, we and and that was not actually always an intentional um, decision. We actually um, ended up trying a whole set of things um, that there just were not trials to do. And so, you know, again, we we had a privileged position where we even could do that. Um, and you know, who knows which of those things actually did help with respect to just outliving the prognosis by quite a lot. Um, it also taught me just how how important the urgency is, not just to create these medicines, but to cause convergence with what is already known, right? So we, for those, those at least three and a half of those four years, we served as a node to that community. And, you know, what we found is so many in that community had a part of the information that was going to be helpful to us. Um, and by facilitating interactions among them, Um, And also by being that node with a very specific case that we're trying to solve, um, I do believe there were things that as a community uh, got uncovered a little faster than might otherwise have happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure he was pretty grateful to have someone like yourself who um, had the know-how to do this research (laughs) and the ability to pick up the phone. We were a team. Yeah, Yeah, we were a team. I I mean, I was, I certainly did my part and, um, you know, I'm very glad that I was able to. Uh, Honestly, his success really is his though. Matthew was somebody that he just was able to relate to anybody. And, you know, if he could get in a room with somebody, there was a there was a, a bond that he would form with them where they knew he was going to do whatever he could. And it just inspired people to, to try, you know, to do things other than what standard of care was. Because the standard of care is, you know, it's not particularly successful yet. Surgery, chemo. I don't. I guess they didn't have the Novacure Optune cap at they that They were point. just starting to, to have Novacure. And, and you know, I, I have to say, I, I think the data that's come out there is impressive since then. Um, we didn't choose the option because the data was just so early at the time. Okay. So when did he die? 2016, April 3rd. And you were at Pfizer at the time? I was at Mark. You were at Mark at that time? I was time. at Mark at the time. Okay. And this, I kind of skipped a forward here, but you were saying that that this is one of the events in your life that happened before you went to Bluebird. That's right. And so, you know, after he died, as as you can imagine, there there was a lot of introspection, right? In terms of, I, I had seen a life play out and, and I'd learned a lot, right? About what it is to live a life and what's important and what you regret and what you don't regret. Right. I, I I learned, for example, I can't think of one regret that he had for something that he did. I can think of regrets for what he didn't actually attempt to do. Right. And so there's there was a shifting sort of in me and my priorities 
there were ways in which I got out of my own way. <laughs> right. Um, there was a, there was, you know, it was a journey, didn't happen all at once, but there was a liberation. And, you know, one of the things that became apparent to me is I wanted to move into a space in my professional life where I could make more direct impact on patient outcomes. And so, you know, being the business developer that I was, I looked around at the entire environment and I, um, you know, Bluebird to me just really stood out as a company that was doing things that were going to make a difference for patients. You know, anybody who's ever done any diligence on Bluebird hears about the culture and the mission-driven culture um, and the collaboration. And so I reached out to uh, the CFO at the time, didn't know him, and I said, hey, can we have breakfast? And uh, yeah, he was nice enough to say yes. <laughs> so we went, had a good breakfast, had a good conversation at the end of it. He says, this has been great, but why are we here? <laughs> and I said, you know, I said, I don't know if you have need for somebody who does what I can do, but I just, I'm enamored of what you guys are, are trying to do. And, you know, if a position opens up, I'd, I'd love to come into it. And so that then started that conversation. Obviously, I went into Bluebird. Um, initially, actually, was in the BD corporate strategy role. Um, and then within several months, uh, they had asked me to lead the oncology franchise. And that's how I got involved in building the oncology business. And were you interested in the oncology work in particular or just everything about the place and its culture? I was interested in everything about the place, its culture, and the medicines that it was trying to get to patients. Um, oncology was something that when I first started at Bluebird, it was a rare disease company, right? And it had an oncology program and had had some oncology research. When they asked me to lead the oncology franchise, one of my first questions was, well, what is that? <laughs> right? What are you asking me to lead? And the, you know, the answer, which was actually a great answer, was um, that's part of what you have to figure out. And so I had this latitude to you know, put a team together. I walked around the place saying, who, who actually is involved in oncology, right? And we got a group of us together and we were able to say, look, given what we have, what could we build out of this? And we put a business plan together, went to the board, said we're going to need actually quite a lot in terms of resourcing, um, and the board agreed. And so we were off to the races in terms of building that business. Meanwhile, the CAR-T revolution is in full swing right. and right. Bluebird, golly, is yep. pretty well positioned it with is. all of its viral vector work. That's right. And and BB2121, at the time, it had already gotten the early, early clinical data. So we didn't know persistence yet, um, but we knew it was something special. And so and so it's, it's, it's really that, right, that gives you the confidence to say, you know, look, this is going to be an important option for patients. Uh, and so... I had the privilege of seeing BB2121 all the way through to the submission. Um, I still have, you know, there's there's one letter from a patient in particular that, you know, whenever I sort of need that extra color on why we do what we do, I just go back and I read the letter from the patient. You know, it made such a difference to so many people. And this is the BCMA-directed CAR-T therapy, right. the second antigen successfully targeted via T-cell therapy. Right. So this I mean, is a BECMA. Yeah, right. a BECMA. It's yeah. um, approved for multiple myeloma. Correct. And right. the response rates that you saw early and throughout they were, were astounding. They were. 
Absolutely. And, you know, and so getting back to your question about mission driven, right? When you know that, when you know you have something that can help people to that extent, your like your ability to run through a wall and then have people run through a wall with you if you've assembled with the right team is just unlimited, right? Because you literally have the key to somebody's life. And if you can get it out to them, the difference you can make to them, to their family, you know, to the concentric circles that constitute their community, it's just profound. Yeah, it sounds like a really intense and purposeful driven yes. time. Yes, it was. That's right. In your life. So when did you leave? So I left in 2021. Um, so um, the... So B-Bio, I was not looking to leave. <laughs> so at Bluebird, we had done the work. We'd grown the business. Um, we were, at that point, um, clarifying that we were going to be splitting the business into what is now 270, so the oncology business as well as Bluebird. Um, and I was very excited about all of that, and I was excited about um, 270. I got an email from a recruiter who was clever enough to put B-cells in the title. And, and, you know, I, I've been following B cells for years because the idea that you could take nature's protein factory and engineer in whatever protein you wanted to, I mean, the, the transformative nature of that, I think is just obvious and, you know, exceptional. Uh, what has always been the case though with B cells is they are so hard to engineer and so hard to actually make that the data's just never been there that tells you that you could actually take this from the you know, realm of academia into something that could become a medicine. Why were why are they so hard to engineer? Well, when you think about a B cell, so you know, I mean, nature spent hundreds of millions of years just designing this very perfect protein factory uh, that was going to make the proteins it needed to defend against you know infectious disease primarily. And so they needed to be pretty impermeable to being manipulated, right? Just the environment that they were meant to work in um, was so, you know, using viral vectors, for example, to actually manipulate these things, they're, they're built not to be manipulated by, by viruses. And so the efficiency with which you could do this was always very low. The other thing is when you think about what you need to do with a B cell medicine. So if you take this cell, which normally makes something. And then you engineer it to make the protein you want, right? And so, for example, in, in um, some of our scientific founder uh, publications, factor nine. So let's say I have a B cell, it makes factor nine. You know, at, at that point, what I've got is a cell that is acting as a biologic, right? Because I give you those cells back. They home to your bone marrow, they sit in your bone marrow, and you've basically got a continuous endogenous infusion happening there. So think about that for a moment. You have this oxymoronic thing where I've got a single dose, continuous endogenous infusion of a biologic. A single cell can do it. Well, it's you no, know, it's a bunch of cells, right? Yeah. But yes, but but yes, you, you basically you've taken you've taken this, you know, infusion and you've and you've given you know, however many engineered B cells that 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 the patient needs. And now they're now. And so, yes, so you don't need your big manufacturing plant. You've got this cell that is doing that. Right. And so but when you think about the properties of that, the precision with which you need to know that you've got dosing right, it basically you've got to navigate biologics, therapeutic windows. 
And so before gene editing, your ability to do that was really limited. Gene editing gives you the ability to do that in that precise way. We can target the locus we want. We know where we're putting it. We know that that locus produces what we want. Um, vector copy number obviously is not an issue. Um, and so, and we don't have to worry about insertional immunogenesis the way that you do with, with many of these other techniques. And so, so we now have the ability to have these engineered B cells produce biologics that navigate the biologics therapeutic windows that, you know, that are relevant. So this is 2021. There's a couple of these scientists, I think at Seattle Children's. Correct. That's, that's where our scientific founders are. So that's David Rawlings and Richard James. Yeah. And, um, the uh, Longwood Fund had done a, a financing of this. Yes. And the thought was, okay, now we have gene editing. We're going to make some edits to uh, um, what amounts to a, a hematopoietic stem cell transplant once this occurs? Or, well, or it's, no? it's, a, it's a B cell infusion. And so you don't need preconditioning. Oh, okay. So, so basically what we have, so the company is founded on can we get a B cell, terminally differentiated B cell? So we're using the plasma cell, which is the other name for terminally differentiated B cell. Can I engineer those to make the therapeutic proteins I want? And because of the biology of this cell, which is very different than the other cell types we tend to think of, can I do this with no preconditioning, right? Because plasma cells naturally home to your bone marrow. There's a niche waiting for them there. So no preconditioning, um, primarily allogeneically, Right, because again, a, a plasma cell has a natural stealth to it that nature built in, um, and then uh, with the ability to redose, since I'm putting in a terminally differentiated cell, if I give you 50 million plasma cells, you're getting 50 million plasma cells. They're not further expanding in your body the way that a T cell would. If it turns out, let's say you're a child and you grow, or let's say for whatever reason I just didn't hit where I wanted to in terms of the therapeutic window, I can give you more. And so I can navigate that 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 dosing question with that redosing in a way that's much more like biologics than it is like a lot of the other cell therapies. And do these cells circulate through the bloodstream or do they have to migrate and engraft into the bone they marrow? They migrate and they engraft into the bone marrow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you can... You do not need to do a bunch of edits to cloak it from the immune system... No. So what's what's interesting in a plasma cell as opposed so let's talk about T cells because that's where we always think about allogenicity. And you know, there are great companies out there trying to break that that question um, into something that becomes a medicine. So with a T cell, to be allogeneic, you need to overcome two things: graft versus host because of the T cell receptor, and then persistence, right? Because the immune system finds these things and eliminates them as they should, right? When you think about their function, you need that. So that first piece, graft versus host, is not an issue in B cells because B cells don't have a T cell receptor. So that's not what you're trying to solve for in the B cell world. So then you get to how about that persistence? A T cell is decorated with a lot of things on its surface that allow the immune system to find it. A B cell, in contrast, when a B cell differentiates into its terminally differentiated form, into that plasma cell, it actually downregulates MHC class two and it downregulates costim. And so what's left is MHC class one, which, so it's naturally stealthy, 
once you sort of get those two things off the surface. You still have MHC class one, which is a relatively straightforward engineering endeavor um, to take off the surface. So very, very different problem to solve when you're trying to solve for allogenicity in plasma or B cells. Okay. So I guess then the question becomes, what proteins do you want these B cells to secrete? Yes. And so that's an awesome question because there's a breadth to this, right? That um, our indication strategy work is something that we do and we continue to do over time. So theoretically, we can engineer any protein. The question is, where do you want to point a technology like this, particularly in the beginning? And for us, the answer to that is we want to solve problems that can't be solved with current biologics. And so we take a look and, and the first thing we do is we say, look, what is what is a biologically de-risk set of targets and proteins we can work on? Within those, what are the ones that still have unmet medical needs? And there are plenty. And then obviously an overlay of, you know, what is the commercial potential is something that is in the picture. It's the third of the three things. Um, that then narrows down what you would start with. As you start to build out a company like those, you can wander out of places where you have that clinically de-risked biologic. Because a B-cell, for example, is just as happy to make you an IgM as it is to make you an IgG. Right. It also, because you've got this continuous infusion, you can also deal with proteins that have very short half-lives. Right. So some of the things that right now are tough to actually dose into patients because of their half-lives, we can now integrate into a B cell and, and deliver it in a continuous way. So you start to you start in, look, I want to understand the platform. I want to really do something that's meaningful for patients. And I'm going to start in that biologically de-risk space. But very rapidly, you can move out into, I can solve things that right now with my current antibody technology just have not been solved. Okay. So this is kind of the foundation of Biopharma, your, your current company. Yes. Uh, and, uh, but you decided, I mean, somebody asked you to come join Correct. and be the CEO of this thing. Yes. Uh, how, how did that come about? So that started with that headhunter email, recruiter email, and I opened it, right? And, you know, I opened it primarily because I was interested to see what's the data that could actually convince somebody to start a company around this. And I was curious enough to at least take the call and look at the data. And in doing that, I was actually stunned by, you know, what Seattle Children's had been able to do. And so the, the data was very compelling in terms of what they'd worked out, the, the way in which they were doing it with gene editing, um, the way in which. So there are two things you have to do to make these things. One is you've got to edit very precisely, as we've talked about. And so you need to cut exactly where you want to. And then you use homology directed repair to paste in your gene. So they'd gotten that to a certain level of efficiency using the editing technologies that, you know, we, we all are familiar with now, but are still very cutting edge. Um, the second thing you have to do, you do that at the level of the primary B cell. You then have to take that edited cell and drive it to a plasma cell, ex vivo, without the benefit of the germinal center. And when you think about that, right, that's not easy. And so... So that's the, that's the second piece that our um, founders out in, uh, our scientific founders out in Seattle Children's had worked out, is how do I drive ex vivo to that plasma cell phenotype? So in looking at the data behind that, 
I was just really struck by what they'd been able to solve. And also the data that they had to show not only that these things produced protein, um, but that they produced them over very long periods of time. They had data that went out past a year. So now I'm interested. <laughs> right? And and so, of course, the next step is they had raised the Series B. Um, so it's a Longwood-founded company. Atlas and RA Capital had um, led the Series A. Did I say Series B? They'd raised the A. Um, so it was Atlas and RA led A. And then Alta was also a participant. So, of course, I talked to folks and asked them about, you know, where, where do you see this going? But also, you know, what, what do you think the challenges are? Right. Um, and it was just very clear to me that this this syndicate that had come together around this, they were interested in building a truly transformative business um, and that, you know, their appreciation not only for the kinds of products that could be produced near term, but also what this can ultimately become. Right. As a, as a company with a platform that would eventually become just this prolific product engine. Um, it had, it just had the right ingredients. So that, I got more intrigued. And so then, you know, I started asking questions of myself, which is, do I think I'm the best person to lead this? Um, and I will, when I looked at sort of the experiences I had, how they came together, um, particularly in cell therapy, you know, the first generation of cell therapy, when I looked at what I enjoyed, Right. Which I do. I love putting together teams and supporting teams and trying to you know, climb those mountains. <laughs> right. With really ambitious summits. Um, it had all the characteristics of something that, you know, I think I truly believe that at BeBio we are leading something that will change the world. Um, and when, when you get there, it's awfully hard to ever look back. And so I made the decision to come. Yeah. Yeah, but you you looked in the mirror and said, yeah, I can do this. I, I, I am the person to do this. I did. And, you know, it's it's funny to hear, you're right, I did that. And it's it still is funny to sort of hear it put that way. One of the things that, you know, when I'm mentoring people and one of the things when I think about my own journey um, that I've learned, and I've learned particularly, I'd say, in the past seven years, right, as part of that leg of my journey is – being able to say to yourself, I'm enough, right? I'm enough. I have what I need. Right? Do I know how I'm going to do this? I really don't, right? But I'm going to put my feet on the mountain. I'm going to train. I'm going to put my feet on the mountain and they're going to carry me. <laughs> well, I, 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 I bring it up partly because, um, you know, you hear this with with women. I mean, yes. you, you never want to generalize, but you do hear it with women who like sometimes they ask, you know, am I really ready? Yes. for this promotion. Whereas yes. men, again, hate to generalize, but a lot of men who are ambitious and have their eye on that corner office, you know, they're not totally ready, but they think they are. <laughs> yeah. I think there can be differences in socialization that can lead to some of the trends that you're talking about. Um, I've certainly known my share of men who, who also um, share in some of that. And you know, as, as I've gotten older, so I'm 53 years old now, I have no problem saying that out loud. I love being 53 years old. And, you know, as, as I've gotten more experience, you know, part of what I've reflected on is, you know, this, this imposter syndrome that, that we talk about. Um, it's actually a manifestation of something that I think starts out as a pretty healthy thing. Because the, the imposter syndrome, oftentimes, it occurs when you're pushing outside of your comfort zone. 
and you're pushing into something that you actually really don't know how to do. You haven't done it. Right. And so there's this natural, I think, self-awareness that kicks in where you go, gosh, can I really do this? Right. I mean, this is so important to me. I really want to make sure that I'm the right person to do it. I think where the imposter syndrome can cross a line, though, is when the answer to that would be, no, I can't because I haven't done it. You know, because that that obviously is that catch-22 and it's blocking forever. The thing that for me has been important is to recognize yeah, actually, if I do the self-reflection and if I really look at the resources I have to bear, I have to bring to bear, it's often not really about just me. It's about me and do I believe I can build the team and support that team to get this thing done? And if that's what I'm walking into the, the room with the question on, can I be the one that builds and supports that team? The answer to that is often yes now. And of course it's difficult. It's unprecedented. Yes. Um, you know, no, nobody can walk <laughs> no. in that room and say, oh, no. <laughs> no, exactly. And, you know, and, and that's where the power of the team just becomes the, 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 it's the first and foremost consideration, I think, of anybody who's going to take on pioneering into something where, I mean, Lady Science, we talk about this all the time. Lady Science holds a deck of cards, right? And those, that deck of cards is pre-printed. Right. Science actually is going to play out. Our job is to make sure that we're setting her up to play those cards out in a way that leads to a medicine in the end. And for us, where we're right to be able to progress it as quickly as possible and where it turns out we guess the card wrong, we know what to do with it. And that I have a really important role in, but that is what the team is about. And that is where no one person has to have all the answers and can't have all the answers when we start out. Okay, so you decide to join this company and it's raised over $100 million. Uh, so you're off to a good start. Um, and how many people do you have on your team? 85. And we've raised $182 million today. 182. Yes. Okay, so um, uh, can you say anything about um, where you think this might go in terms of applications, like targets and indications? So that will be our conversation next year. <laughs> what I can tell you is um, we are currently developing a pipeline in rare disease and oncology. Um, I can also tell you that we are aiming to have our first program in the clinic in 2024. Um, and it, re it really will be in 2023 that we start to um, both uh, become public about the indication for the lead. And then, you know, the behind that is a pretty robust pipeline. We have a product engine now um, that, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. We both have started to understand the underlying rules of what makes a great B-cell medicine, as well as we have the operations in place to be able to produce research candidates on relatively short timeframes. And so, you know, both from an internal perspective and then a BD perspective, it gives us a lot of substrate. Mm -hmm. Now, you spoke earlier about these product candidates having <clears throat> being allogeneic. So it's a cell line that you can take off the shelf and give to anybody. Yes. Uh, and but also that it can be redosed. Correct. Um, why would someone want to 
perhaps redose yeah, cell therapies? Great question. So, so maybe one point of clarification, our lead program will intentionally be autologous. And that really is a regulatory and clinical strategy uh, question. We can make a very meaningful medicine in this particular indication and not have to understand the allogenicity in the clinic before we understand the cell type in the clinic. Okay. So for those not familiar with the term, that's an autologous. That's where you're going to take the cells out of an individual patient, make the edits, and then reinfuse their own cells back into them as the therapy. So that's the first. Um, now, with with respect to your the second part of your question, the redosing. Yes, so the redosing super important for a number of reasons. Let's say, for example, that you have a patient uh, with a genetic disease, right, and you give them infusion of B cells as a child. As that patient grows, the amount of biologic they need will probably also grow. And so if it's, if it's truly one done and I can't redose, then the appropriateness for pediatric utilization is, is fairly low, right? With what we can do as the child grows, we can give more B-cell medicines, right? And so we can increase the dose of the biologic. So that's one. Um, two is, let's say I give a patient a dose and, you know, for whatever reason, I haven't quite gotten in a therapeutic window to the extent that I want to, because you expect to see donor to donor variability and patient to patient variability in something that is this complex, I can increase the dose. Um, and so, you know, again, a, a lot as this, as you would use a biologic, these are the same features that that you would want to be able to draw on when you're having an engineered B cell um, that is taking the place of your biologic. But you're not really envisioning this as a infusion that you take on a regular schedule once every four weeks or every Correct. six months. Correct. It's it's uh, it's something that the doctor kind of has in his or her hip pocket and can pull out later when needed. When needed. So so the um, the natural half life of a plasma cell is seventeen years, right? So these are very very long lived cells. Now, what the lifetime for a, an engineered B cell is going to be in clinical utilization, we're going to have to see in the clinic what that is. Our, our current animal models take it out well past a year. Um, so you're right. It's, it's not something that you would see dosed every four weeks. Um, it really is something where you would expect to give a dose and then have that dose um, have a, a significant durability. So the proposition to the patient is... Take this drug, and it, the drug itself is like the goose that keeps laying the golden eggs. That's right. <laughs> and it, That's it, right. it, it might last for 10, 15, 20 years. Potentially, But, but, but yes. if we need to give you a booster at some point, we can, we can do, that. do that. That's right. That's right. And let's say in any given application, it doesn't last for 15 years. Let's say it lasts for two years. I can give you an infusion at two years, right? And so... Um, I have that flex, which, you know, again, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an application where what you're doing is giving a biologic, you, you want to have that flex. It's a really different profile for one of these yes. cell therapy medicines. It has implications for pricing and reimbursement and, you know, and it's the, a the, fascinating whole, the, whole, the whole psychology, which I'm That's trying right. to get into here between the, yes. the, the patient and family members. That's right. It does. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, cell therapy, I mean, as, as I'm sure you can tell, I'm, I'm an incredible enthusiast for what we can do within cell therapy. And, 
you know, I mean, having been associated with the BECMA is, you know, the highlight of, you know, of, of what my career has been before B-Bio. That being said, they're very different, right? So if you look at T-cells, T-cells are the weapons, right? The T-cell is doing the work. We have the factory that makes the weapons. Those are very different things. Um, and so, you know, generalizing cell therapy is something we have to be a little careful about because these cell types, they're very different from each other. And, and, the, and the B cell in particular um, has just very different properties and, is, and it functions as a very different type of medicine. Absolutely fascinating. I think anybody who follows cell therapy as a field uh, is going to want to pay attention to um, this company as you go up and you know say say more about um, what you're about to do thank you joanne smith farrell thank you so much for joining me today on the thank long run. you for having me luke thanks for listening to the long run a production of timmerman report pedro rosado of head Stepper media was the sound editor music is from d.a wallach see you next episode